tolerance. Have you heard of tolerance? Well, on the surface, it sounds like a wonderful word, and it is. But in reality now, it's a new religion. It really is. A new religion that is sweeping across the Western world in general. Tolerance is the most intolerant religion. (laughs) And woe unto the person who refuses to embrace its tenets. The high priests of this new religion would preach freedom of choice. You're free to choose your car. You're free to choose your house. You're free to choose your mate. You're free to kill a baby in a mother's womb. You're free, except you're not free to choose to believe that there's only one way to heaven and salvation. You're not free to publicly speak about the truth and that Jesus is the only truth. At that moment, those ministers of this new religion of tolerance can cause you the loss of your job. They can throw you out of school or university campus. They can discriminate against you. They can ostracize you. They can alienate you. Above all, they will label you as intolerant. And, beloved, this is the unpardonable sin in the religion of tolerance. This new and false religion has swept a number of so-called evangelical churches off their feet, so much so that thousands of these churches have replaced sound biblical teaching with what they call post-evangelical narrative. Did you get that? Post-evangelical narrative. Post-evangelical narrative says that if one is to be relevant to the 21st century culture, we need to deny the reality of hell. In reality, they are populating hell. And then they continue. Any Christian teaching that is contrary to the religion of tolerance, they don't use the word religion of tolerance, must either be modified, marginalized, or deleted. Let me explain to you why within the Christian church, you use the word love, not the way as we understand it from Scripture, and I'm going to explain that in a minute. But they always talk about tolerance. You see, love, genuine love, that's the love of Jesus Christ, which is in the heart of every believer. We have no option but to love everybody, everybody, whether they agree with us or not. Even if they are enemies, we have to love them. And the object of our love is the person, people. They are the object of love. But the object of tolerance is evil, wickedness, sin, rebellion against God. And that is why they would rather choose the word tolerance than the word love, even though some evangelicals use the word love, or should we abuse the word love. And that is where the apostle Peter comes in to deal with these falsehoods. This epistle of Peter, as I told you in the very beginning, I'm calling it, it's never too late, because it is seldom preached from in many a pulpit, seldom quoted. And yet, it is as relevant to the believers, the ones who love the Lord Jesus, as relevant today to strengthen us to stand up and stand out than even in the time when it was written. 
In the last message from Second Peter, we saw Peter not only assailing the false teaching, but he was denouncing the false teachers, something that if you do today, you immediately get labeled as intolerant. <laughs> Here in chapter 2, I hope you turn to it with me, chapter 2 begins to assure us of the impending doom that will come upon those false teachers and false preachers. Himirat, please. Perhaps there is nothing more offensive to God than the distortion of His Word. Did you get that? I'll repeat it. <laughs> Perhaps there is nothing more offensive to God than the distortion of His Word. To falsify or minimize or substitute or modify God's Word in order to please people and to please the culture in which we live is to promote Satan's lie as the truth. Why is this so serious and why I'm going to be dwelling on it for a little bit? Why? It is absolutely serious. This is the battle of the Christian believers in this generation. Because eternity is at stake. Nothing short of eternity that's at stake. Falsifying or modifying the gospel just to fill in the pews is a serious offense to God. But, beloved, here's what Peter tells us. He's saying this is not new. So all of us in the 21st century, don't be surprised by it. Know it. Stand against it. Be faithful. But it is not new, as he says in verse 1. Because whenever the Word of God is preached, Satan is always behind with his falsehood. Whenever the wheat is being sown, Satan is right behind. He is sowing what? Tears. John 8, 44, that Satan is the father of all lies. He is the inventor. Uh, he is the promoter. He is the preacher of all lies, and he uses false teachers in the church to do it, to promote this lie. But Peter said something else here again. Look at it with me, please. This is not new because even in the Old Testament, he's talking about the people of God, back in the Old Testament, there were false prophets. Even back then, just as there are false teachers today, his day, our day. But there were also false prophets, talking about the Old Testament, among the people, just as there were false teachers among you. Beloved, we have tolerated false teaching for too long. Amen. Amen. So much so today, I have known and you have known Bible-believing Christians. And I'm not talking about professing Christians. I'm talking about Bible-believing Christians, evangelicals, who are embarrassed about biblical absolutes. They're embarrassed about it. We say, well, I believe it, but you don't have to. That's how they kind of couch it. In my book, The Barbarians Are Here, I argue that this is precisely the attitude that will bring down the demise of Western civilization. Look at me. I'm not a sunburned Swede. So I am not part of Western civilization. But I'm telling you, on the authority of history and fact, that whole Western civilization was built 
and founded upon the Reformation without Reformation, there could have been no Western civilization. There would have been no progress. All of the missionary movement, all of the hospital movement, all of the library movement, all of education, everything that is experienced today in Western civilization is based on biblical truth as it was preached by the Reformers. You can always discern a false teacher by how easily he or she embraces the worldly culture. Did you get that? You can always discern a false teacher or preacher by how easily they embrace worldly culture and popular culture. When that happens, a congregation that was once on fire for God, slowly but surely, no longer endure sound doctrine. They no longer endure sound teaching. Congregations that once was Christ-centered, had Christ-centered worship and preaching, uh, they give way to man-made antics and entertainment. The Bible emphasis that was once preached about sin and repentance and the holiness of God become replaced by emphasis on self-esteem and felt needs. Look at verse 1 again. As I said, I'm dwelling on this. They will secretly, actually it's subtly, that's what really mean we're subtly. Very, oh, they're very clever. They're slick. Subtly introduce destructive heresies. Please, please trust me when I tell you I have seen this movie before. <laughs> I've seen it 30 years ago. I'm seeing it in the mainline churches. Now I'm seeing it in the evangelical churches. I have seen this movie before and starts by saying, I personally believe in the virgin birth, but you don't have to. Or I personally believe and uphold heterosexual marriage, but you don't have to. And the list goes on and on and on. I don't have time to go through it. These false teachers will never come out and say, I don't believe the Bible anymore. I really never believed the Bible. I don't believe the Bible is inspired Word of God. I don't believe in inerrancy of the Scripture. No, 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 no. They're too clever for that. They'll couch it with a disclaimer. Why? Because, for example, the virgin birth, when they say, you don't have to, but you come to Jesus. How do you come to a Jesus who is not divine? If he's not divine, and he's born just like all of us, of the will of man, of the seed of man, then he is a sinner. How can a sinner bear the sins of sinners? You see, the very core of the gospel is at the stake here. When they say, well, you don't have to believe in the sanctity of marriage, what are they doing? They are destroying the very purpose of God in creation. What are these false teachers doing? According to the Word of God, they are exchanging the truth of God's words for their own self-styled opinion. And Peter is saying these false teachers have been, are, and always will be around. They'll always be around. It's like the card that I read a long time ago that says, old fishermen never die. They only smell that way. As you know, I love children, and I love 
reading stories about kids and how they react. And, and this Sunday school teacher was asking her eight- and nine-year-old kids and said, what is false doctrine? Little Bobby raised his hand and he said, it is when the doctor gives the wrong stuff to people who are sick. Now, he confused doctor with doctrine, <laughs> but he came to the right definition. Peter is giving us a number of ways to spot a false teacher and a false preacher. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, they will secretly, I already told you, subtly introduce destructive heresies. They're very subtle. They're too slick. They're, they're very sneaky. Sometimes they'll use word like love, <laughs> but really they meant something else. In reality, they want you to love them, not love the truth. <laughs> the word destructive heresies here it means a, a doctrine that contains some truth, but cleverly blended with error. <laughs> it's like a glass of water with few drops of hemlock <laughs> or cyanide. One word. In one word, Peter is telling us these false teachers are the masters of deception. They're brilliant communicators. They just have enough of the truth there to make the unsuspecting keep on coming to them, keep on coming to them. While they are slowly but surely, they are poisoning the water. Remind me of a, the farmer who decided one day oats getting too expensive. So he was going to slowly substitute oat with sawdust in feeding of his mule. In the beginning, there were a lot of oats, a little bit of sawdust. Then more sawdust and less oats. Then more sawdust, then more sawdust, until in the end was all sawdust. The mule survived for a while, but in the end the mule dropped dead. You cannot survive on spiritual sawdust, spiritually speaking, particularly when it is slow and gradual, slow and gradual introduction of error mixed with the truth. It will be accepted until people find themselves spiritually dead. And Peter is saying, these people deny the Lord. When I read this, I said, who on God's earth can know what it means to deny the Lord like Peter? He knew what it means to deny his Lord, and yet he also knows how welcoming the Lord is to every repentant person, even the one who deny him, just like the difference between him and Judas. Peter turned to the Lord, and he was renewed and given a great ministry. Judas hung himself. So it is my prayer that if you are tempted, pastor, to go down that road, that you will turn back to the Lord before it's too late. In fact, the Greek word for deny means contradict or reject or disavow. They deny the Lord who bought them. I want you to say those words with me. They deny the Lord who bought them. Some of you are saying, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. He bought them? And the reason I'm going to dwell in this for a minute is because people fought over this for 2,000 years. <laughs> I want to clarify it for you so you will never miss it. Deny the Lord who bought them. What does it mean, the Lord who bought them? Beloved, when our Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross 
and his blood kept on dripping, kept on dripping until he died on that cross. By this very gracious act, Jesus bought the whole world, the whole world. When Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, he handed the deeds of planet Earth to Satan. But on the cross, Jesus arrested the planet Earth's deeds from Satan's hand. And so he bought the whole world. It means that redemption is possible for everyone, every human being on the face of the earth. By buying the whole world, Jesus' redemption now is possible for whomsoever, whomsoever, whomsoever. By buying the whole world does not mean that He redeemed the whole world as some of these false teachers are teaching. By buying the world, Jesus is giving everyone an opportunity to come to Him and be redeemed. By buying the world, Jesus is saying that the Muslim and the Hindu and the Buddhist and the atheist and the non-religious and the agnostic, everyone, all can come to me and receive salvation from my hand. That's what buying the world means. He bought it all, but he did not redeem it all. This is vitally important, beloved, because every statistic show 64% of so-called evangelical Christians believe that there are many ways to God. I told you, this is the battle of our time. On the cross, Jesus redeemed whomsoever comes to him to be saved, not redeemed the whole world, like so many of these universalists are saying. Rob Bell, one of the poster boys for false teachers and false preachers who it started well and went bad, puts it this way, love wins, meaning everybody's going to make it. But in reality, redemption is only for those who have received Jesus Christ as their only Savior and Lord. Redemption is only for those who have availed themselves to the value of that shed blood on Calvary. And even Jesus Himself tells us that. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus pictures Himself as the man who sold everything. He gave up everything. He gave up His glory in heaven. He gave His all to buy a field. And the Bible said, the field is the world. He tells us that the field is the world with all that's in it. The wheat and the tear, he bought the world. They all bought by his death. His death on the cross was sufficient. Listen carefully to that word. His death on the cross was sufficient for the redemption of the whole world, but is only effective for those who repent of their sins and turn to him. It's only effective for those who come to him his way, not their own terms. And those who teach any other gospel are false teachers, false preachers, and their destruction will be swift. Look at verse 2 with me, please. I know some of you are looking at your faces now and say, ooh, he's only at verse 2. <laughs> Don't panic, <laughs> because I focused on the most important thing. I'm going to spare you the gory details of the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah, although I will not skip it. But I'm dwelling on this because it is very important. Verse 2, these false teachers who are lowering biblical standards of morality, these false teachers who are encouraging 
self-indulgence, sexual perversions, they will be swiftly judged. They'll be swiftly judged. Verse 3, those who wink at wickedness and immorality for personal gain, those who have chosen the ministry not because God's call on their life, but because it's a lucrative profession, those who have chosen to be ministers not because they care for the people's eternity, but for their own self-aggrandizement. They may become accepted and loved by the sinful culture. They may receive the applause and the accolades and the approval of the sinful culture. And yet, in reality, they are digging their own eternal grave. Doesn't give me any joy saying this. Someone may be asking, and I know somebody asked me that several months ago, if that is the case, why these people are so successful? Now listen to me very carefully. I'm going to give you the answer. It has nothing to do with them. It has to do with God. God is very, 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 very… How many varies are these? Very patient. God is long-suffering. God gives them ample opportunity to turn to Him and repent, just as He gave an opportunity to Peter, who denied Him. But in the end, please do not judge things by appearances. The last chapter has not been written yet. And then in verses 4 to 11, Peter gives us specific biblical evidence of how God is going to deal with the wicked, how God is going to sooner or later going to judge them. They will not get away with it. Verse 4, God judged angels, and He kicked them out of heaven when they sinned. When Lucifer and one-third of the angelic being rebelled against the holy God, they were thrown out of heaven into the very pit of hell, and they will be eventually thrown into the lake of fire when Jesus comes back in power and great glory. And so He sent these fallen angels to utter doom, and He'll do the same with false preachers and teachers. But not only fallen angels were severely judged, the ancient world when they turned their backs on the truth of God, they suffered doom and destruction. In fact, the book of Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 gives us a description of the culture at that time. I'll read it to you and see if that picture does fit our time. When every imagination of thoughts of their heart were only evil continuously, only Noah and his family they were righteous, and they were saved. Let me ask you this. Do you know how long it took God to preach righteousness through Noah to the, His generation? Do you know how often He pleaded with them, escape, 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 while well, escaping is good? Do you know how many years? Hundred and twenty years! Oh, God is long-suffering. He's patient. Now, fast forward 450 years from the time when the flood came and covered the whole earth. 450 years after the flood, the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah turned their back on the witness of a righteous man by the name of Lot, and God judged them severely. Now, I don't know about you, but I think some of you, if you're like me, when you looked at this verse 7 and says, righteous man like Lot, 
Now, wait a minute. We know that guy. He was righteous? How can the the Bible calls him righteous? Listen carefully, please. Verse 8 tells you the answer. Verse 8, for by what the righteous man saw and heard, as he lived among them, he was tormented. The old translation said he was vexed. Literally, it means he was tortured. He was being tortured. Hear me right, please. What I'm going to say to you is going to surprise some of you. Not all of you. It's going to surprise some of you. But I hope you understand me, not misunderstand me. The mark of righteousness, and we in the New Testament believers only have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not our own. But the mark of righteousness of how you react to the sinful culture in which we live. The false preachers and teachers say, let's accommodate to it. Under the guise of engaging the culture, they're swimming in the murky water of the culture. But the righteous, the righteous, weeps over the sinful culture. The righteous soul is distressed over it. The righteous heart breaks in two, and the righteous hearts long for them to come, pray for them to come, and do what they can to introduce them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So the question is, when you come into direct contact with evil culture in which we all live, how do you react? Do you want to accommodate to it? Do you want to go along with it? Do you want to accept it as an inevitable progress? Or do you weep over it? Or do you seek with all your heart to light a candle in that dark place? Does it drive you on your knees to pray for them and witness to them? Like now, 450 years before Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot stood against the sin of his day. And then at verse 9, Peter assures us that God is able to deliver the righteous and judge the deceiver. He's able to do it, and He'll do it. Make no mistake about it, the world will accuse us of hate. They will. And I often think, I said, we're the, we're the most loving people in the face of the earth. We're the most caring people in the face of the earth. People who are with broken heart over their sin, but we love them with all of our heart. But your brokenness over their sin is your greatest indication that you are righteous, man, woman, boy, or girl. Beloved, the pattern of divine judgment is very clear. It's throughout the Scripture. And Peter reiterates it here. First, there is comfort in the fact that we know the Lord knows how to rescue, how to deliver His righteous ones. God knows how to save His own. Make no mistake about it. And that is why we have no fear. Peter also saying that God knows how to judge the unrighteous. For the unrighteous is like a man or woman on death row. They're in the cell. They could be called any moment. 
to face their judgment. Meanwhile, as they were sitting in that cell, as they're waiting, they accumulate more guilt, unless, of course, they repent and turn to the Lord. That is why the series of messages called It Is Never Too Late. I don't care how far you've gone from God. I don't know how much you have sinned. The grace of God is greater than all of your sins. Our God delivers from the guttermost to the uttermost. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord specially targets, especially the false teachers who indulge the flesh and corrupt desires. Every time I think of this falsehood and the false narrative that's being taught in many a church and the misleading of so many people by false teachers, these so-called evangelical preachers who accommodate to the culture instead of standing against culture. I think of that historical event that took place back in the 1600s where Europe but particularly England, was suffering from the plague. It's always called the plague. And it hit London silently and quietly, but hit it severely. After they ignored the disease, and they thought, well, it would go away, and they waited for a long time, kept on ignoring it, it began to spread like wildfire. In May of 1664, a few isolated cases They've been reported. People still did not heeded the warning. The following May, 1665, 590 people died from it. In July, 17,000 people died. In August, the death rate reached 31,000 people. People were in full panic mode. Eventually, two-thirds of the population of London in a panic, escaped their homes and went out in the country thinking they can escape the same fate. But they could not run away from their ignorance. They could run away from that false narrative. Somebody had mistakenly thought that this disease was caused by the polluted air. And so, everyone started putting flower petals in their pockets thinking that the fragrance of the flowers would keep them safe from the plague. Sometimes patients who could walk were taken out of the hospital beds, and they walked out in the garden together in order to breathe. And they literally would hold hand in circle, breathing deeply the smell of the roses. And when patients could not walk and they were bedridden, the doctors would fill their own pockets with these colorful petals of the English posy, and, and they walked around their beds so the patients can smell the beautiful flowers. Another superstition said that if you get a spoon full of ashes and you put it under the nose of the patient and let him breathe the ashes, he'll sneeze, and that way you get the disease out. The truth is, neither ashes nor posies were of any value to preventing that death. It was only when the real cause was discovered that they were able to slow the death rate. The disease was spreading by a flea 
from infected mice, infected rats. Sadly, that superstition of the time gave rise to the little song that little kids even to this day sing, Ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. People in that day were very sincere in believing of all these things, but they were sincerely wrong. Beloved, listen to me and I'm about to close. The same thing of these false teachers and false preachers, they are misleading untold number of people. They're telling them that they can pick and choose what they like and what they don't like from the Word of God, that the Word of God has never been inerrant, that the Word of God has never been infallible, that the Word of God was never God-breathed. In reality, these people are misled all the way to a Christless eternity. I don't know about you, but I'm willing to die on this hill. I'm willing to die for this truth. You who know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's your decision whether you are willing to stand for the truth or accommodate to our evil culture. It's your decision whether you want to be misled by false teachers or get into the Word of God. But there may be somebody here today, and this stuff kind of new to them, and they've really given their life to Christ. They never surrendered their life. They never know what it means to come to Jesus just as they are and say, Lord, forgive me and receive the forgiveness, the gift of forgiveness, and the gift of eternal life. Well, you can do that today. If you need His forgiveness, say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I want to receive you as my only Savior and Lord. If you're a person who has compromised and, and began to go along with the current of culture, say, Lord Jesus, hold me that I must stand and say with Martin Luther, here I stand, for I can do no other. Father, I thank You that You're the searcher of our hearts, and Your Holy Spirit have heard every single cry of every heart that has prayed and continue to pray. And we ask You for the sake of the blood that was shed on Calvary, come with power and great glory. Answer Your people's prayer and respond to their cries. For, Father, we know You're a faithful God, and You cannot deny Yourself even when we are unfaithful. You are faithful God, and we pray that in the matchless name, the name for whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, sooner or later, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.